Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the next hour here on WFMU Freeform Station of the Nation from Jersey City in the great state of New Jersey. I'm happy to be with you this evening, and I'm happy you joined. And I want to start with um, a callback to last week's show, because what I'm doing this evening has to do with what you, the listeners, requested, at least some of you. Last week, I asked, would listeners prefer a year-end show, a year-in-review show? Because this is my... This is my last show of the calendar year 2022. Next week, I hope you will tune in because Arb is going to be guest hosting. It's going to be a great show. Uh, So I won't be here, but Arb will be here next week. So this is my final 2022 show. And I asked last week, would you prefer to have a year in review show like a a lot of shows and magazines and other media sources do these days? Or would you like the next interview that I have queued up? And I said, just as a warning, it's, um, it's a little bit grim, this book, this, this novel. And everyone on the, not everyone, but almost everyone on the comment board said, interview, interview. And uh, really wanted to go ahead and dive into this novel called The Backstreets. So here we are. Uh, I have this interview ready to go. And, uh, and that's what we're going to spend the, uh, this evening's show uh, talking about. Now, I need to give you a little bit of context. Uh, which we'll go over in the interview, but just just so you know, before I before I start this, my guest this evening is Darren Byler. He uh, was on the show. He's been on the show once before. He was on the show on January 17, 2022, talking about a book that he wrote called "In the Camps: China's High Tech Penal Colony," and great book, really important book. Uh, and I think the interview came out really well. If you want to go back in the archives, actually, there's a link to that show on uh, tonight's playlist. If you go to WFMU.org and click Playlist and Comments, you can find it. Or go to Tectonic.fm if you're listening in the future, T-E-C-H, Tonic.fm, and click the playlist on the uh, December 19, 2022 show. Anyway, uh, Darren was on the show back in January talking about his book, In the Camps, which uh, describes the the history and the current events going on in Xinjiang, which is the western region of China, uh, in which an estimated million to maybe more, maybe two million, it's hard to tell, of the Uyghur population, this Turkic Muslim population, these are Chinese uh, citizens, have been locked up in camps, in forced labor factories, uh, in, in re-education facilities, uh, all as a way for the the uh, Han Chinese minority, uh, s- excuse me, the Han Chinese majority uh, Chinese Communist Party to squelch all expressions of Uyghur culture that has that has been in Central Asia, that part of Central Asia for how many thousands of years, and uh, the Chinese uh, Communist Party is using a very heavy hand, and as I said, has has set up a. A, uh, a network of camps, which is completely outrageous. Um, so Darren Byler spent time there. Uh, he did research, and he, he wrote a book called In the Camps. Well, as part of his travels to Xinjiang, he, and he'll tell the story, that, the details, but, but he got involved in uh, translating the novel of one of the most prominent Uyghur novelists and poets, uh, a gentleman named Perhat Tursun, who you're going to hear about in this interview. So the, the novel that we're going to be talking about this evening is a novel by Perhat Tursun that has been translated, actually co-translated by Darren Byler. He, he worked with an anonymous translator who you will hear about. And this novel, what's really important about this novel is that it, it, it tells, or I should say, it expresses the experience not from the perspective of us, of Americans or Westerners looking into Xinjiang, it, it describes the perspective of a Uyghur on the receiving end of everything that's happening to his region. Uh, and it's been, it's been compared to the writings of Franz Kafka and 
uh, James Joyce, and we'll get into it in the interview. But it's um, it's a uh, it's a it's a very important book. It's very significant uh, for its for its uh, literary power of of expression. Ex- as I say, describing the experience of a Uyghur trying to survive, trying to maintain a, a kind of identity in his own region as these changes, these vast changes are, are occurring. Uh, so Darren and I are going to talk about the book itself, what it says, and then the story around the book, um, what has happened to the author and the co-translator. This is a really important topic, and if I have some time after the interview, I'll go over again why I want to continue to come, come back again and again to what's happening in Xinjiang, because it is intimately tied to the other topics on this show having to do with the effects of big tech and big capital on all of us, uh, and, and very often have horrible consequences, like this completely uh, outrageous situation in China where these innocent people are being locked up. And there are very powerful Americans who are complicit in this. So not to just dump on China. I mean, it's, it is a problem of the entire system that we are uh, viewing and that I try to talk about on this show. Let's go ahead and listen to this interview with Darren Byler, co-translator of The Backstreets. If you'd like to join in the live listener chat, we've got one going on right now. Go to WFMU.org, click playlist and comments. And uh, here's the interview on Tectonic on WFMU. Darren Byler, welcome back to Tectonic. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you back, Darren. You were first on the show on January 17, 2022, talking about your book, In the Camps, China's High-Tech Penal Colony, which drew on your years of research in Xinjiang, the western region of China, and the plight of the Uyghurs. This time you're back talking about a book that you translated. It's a novel called The Back Streets, and it's written by a Uyghur novelist and poet named Perhat Tursun, uh, again, translated by you, or co-translated by you, and an anonymous translator, a Uyghur translator in the region of Xinjiang. There are a number of reasons why this novel is significant, both for its literary merits, but also as a record of what we talked about back in January 2022 about what's been happening in that part of the world to the Uyghurs, this uh, Muslim population of that western region of China. And it ties in with some, the novel ties in with some of the themes that we talked about then that come up a lot on Tectonic. So I'm interested to dive in. Before we get to Torson's novel, The Backstreets, that you translated, Darren, I wonder if we could just bring the listeners up to speed a little bit on what has happened in this western region of China, who the Uyghurs are, and how the surveillance state and the system of camps have played a role in that. Well, thanks so much um, for having me back. The Uyghur population is, a, is around 12 million people. There are Turkic Muslim people entered the historical record around the 7th century, which means that they're they're basically indigenous to the space that they live, which is on a border between Kazakhstan and the other Central Asian states. And their land is the source of around 20% of Chinese oil and natural gas, 85% of Chinese cotton now. And so it's an important resource for the Chinese economy, which has driven a lot of migration of people from other parts of China to this area. Han people, non-Muslims, non-native to this place. So really what it's produced is a a kind of internal settler colonization. Uh, And as Uyghurs are being pushed off of their land, they've resisted in some ways, sometimes violently, um, but mostly not violently. Mostly they're just continuing to live and, and their existence itself is becoming a problem for the state in saying that these people are not assimilating. Um, they are threatening the national security of our country. Uh, and so we see in the last five years, what we've seen is, is a forcible assimilation project, a social engineering project that looks like mass internment taking hundreds of thousands of people, putting them in camps and beginning to transform them through kinds of thought reform or 
re-education is how it's it's re referred to which means that they're they're teaching them how not to be muslim how to no longer value uyghur culture and uyghur traditions and instead embrace chinese language chinese culture and then eventually putting them to work in chinese factories um, and so it's, it's a way of removing them from the land and then putting them to work in the chinese economy and of course, there's lots of problems in forcing people to do that kind of work. It's not actually effective in, in terms of like actually having people devalue their own traditions. Instead, what it does is produces forms of resentment and more broadly fear, really widespread fear, a kind of state terror that means that people you know have to change their lives whether they want to or not. Family separation is now widespread with the children being sent to residential schools, the parents separated from each other in factories and prisons. So it's produced a real devastation for Uyghur society. So that that's what's happened. If listeners are interested to learn more of the details of what you're talking about, Darren, they can go back in the archives of Tectonic, find the show from January 17, 2022, because you wrote a whole book called In the Camps. And uh, again, as I said before, the several years of research that you did into primary documentation that shows how the system has been built. One of the reasons I bring up Xinjiang fairly frequently on Tectonic is because of the technological infrastructure that China uses in order to surveil, track, and round up these innocent people to put them in the camps, as you say, separating parents from children and, and spouses from each other. And the technology is both of Chinese and American manufacture. There are American technologies that have been used in order to build that system, right? Yeah, that's what I focus on in the book um, and, and really is a central focus of my work is how technology systems that are used to produce full spectrum intelligence, um, which comes out of military science, counterinsurgency theory, um, and were really born out of the, the global war on terror how those are now being utilized by the Chinese state to target citizens within its own country. And those look like, you know, data valence tools, which are tools to scan people's phones, going back through digital their digital history to see what they were doing in the years before, to map their social network, to track their movement as they move through space. And those same tools are often diagnostic as well, where they're producing a, a rating of this person as being trustworthy or untrustworthy. You know, really arbitrary sort of markers within or, or parameters within the algorithms are used to decide if this person should be sent to a camp, if they're a, a sort of pre-criminal. Um, and that looks like going to the mosque too often, praying too often, fasting during Ramadan, just basic Muslim stuff is are things that are being criminalized by the state using these kinds of surveillance tools. So it's, it's a very pervasive system, I think a kind of limit case in terms of how automated forms of surveillance are used in the world and it has become a kind of a laboratory for developing further tools. Just one one last thing is that the the American components of this of these systems are often sort of the more basic technologies. So it's it's um you know Oracle building a database type archival system that will allow them to store and then begin to move different streams of data into the same system to make it accessible. They're not necessarily designed directly to support the Uyghur internment, but they're being utilized. The companies that are selling these things are, are kind of actively marketing them to police departments around the world and so on. And so they're complicit, even if they don't actually implement in the final end case, the tools, they're complicit because they they haven't stopped them from being used in these ways. Yeah, they're knowingly profiting from the build-out of the surveillance state. <laughs> and as you say, they're, right. they're actively marketing it and hoping to increase those profits. Now, to bring this back to the novel, which is the reason I asked you onto the show, uh, again, it's a novel from Xinjiang written by a Uyghur novelist and poet named Perhat Tursun. The novel is called The Back Streets, and you co-translated this from Uyghur into English with an anonymous translator. There is a story that we should tell about the writing of the novel and the translation of the novel and the publishing of the novel because it dovetails with this, this progression we've just been discussing about the imprisonment of hundreds of thousands of people because un unfortunately Perhat Tursun has been imprisoned 
and so has the anonymous co-translator. Could you say a little bit about Torsen's writing of this novel and what happened next? Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of this novel was written in the 90s and follows to some extent the author Perhat Torsen's own life history. He went to Beijing in the 1980s as one of the first cohorts of Uyghur students to learn Chinese and, and to study in Beijing and was there during the Tiananmen Square protests and participated in them um, and then came back to the Uyghur region of Xinjiang and found a job uh, as sort of a bureaucrat in one of these government organizations. And so, you know, the protagonist of the novel is has a similar life path. They go to Beijing, they come back to Urumqi and and try to find a place to live in the city. So, you know, Perhat wrote this in the 90s, um, but then he was updating it in the 2000s. And as I was translating it with my with my co-translator, he was continuing to edit it. And so he was he was making it as relevant as he could to the current moment. Um, and so there's this one moment towards the beginning of the book where the protagonist encounters a Han person walking down the street who's sitting kind of under his breath, the word chop over and over and over again that he wants to. And, and then he says, I want to kill. I want to chop the heads off of every person that lives in the southern part of the region, which is the Uyghur area. And then the protagonist is thinking about like what that would actually mean to to kill 12 million Uyghurs, how long it would take this person to do that. He's sort of ironically, you know, sort of thinking through the mechanics of it. But anyway, what that scene is evoking is the genocidal rage that Uyghurs have experienced for quite a long time. Um, the process of being dehumanized by other people in the city, by the settler population, and also by the institutions of the, the settler project. And so he's he's describing a process of dispossession, of relationships of domination being built over and above uh, the Uyghur population, and what that feels like, how, how it produces, in this novel, it produces madness, it produces alienation and loneliness. Um, he also talks about how, in some cases, it produces violence with you know people lashing out violently. So it's a story of colonization that he's trying to tell in the story, in, in the novel. One thing I really valued about this book, The Backstreets, is that it gives a complimentary view to what you and I talked about back in January 2022. Because in your book, In the Camps, as we just discussed, you're writing about your research into the area and what companies and government agencies have done. This book, The Backstreets, gives a Uyghur's perspective on those events and really gives a strong subjective sense of how it feels to be in a culture that's being erased by a government and what it's like to be devalued and, as you said, dehumanized, treated with suspicion, even treated violently, all of which are depicted in the protagonist's walk through this, this foggy night through Urumqi. Maybe we can talk about some of the images that Torsun uses to depict that feeling of alienation. The fog comes up constantly throughout this book from the very beginning. Most of the novel is his walk through the city at night on a very foggy night, but it's apparent that he's not just speaking literally about fog. The fog is embodying this oppressive environment that he and other Uyghurs live in. Can you say a little bit about what Tursun is trying to communicate with the fog? Well, I mean, it, it, he doesn't say exactly what he what he means by it. And so it, it is up to the reader to decide to some extent to interpret what, what he means by it. But I know speaking to my co-translator, speaking to Perhat, and to, to readers of the novel, Uyghur readers, that what you're saying resonates with them, that, that this is more than simply pollution, although there is that in the city. It is Urumqi, it was and is one of the most polluted cities in the world. Um, so it's really smog, right? It's not simply water vapor. I mean, it's it's a lot of stuff floating around the air. Yeah, it's so it's both dust because it's desert. It's a desert region, and it's um, an area. The city is situated between two mountain ranges, and so like air just sort of sits in there. But mostly, it's pollution from the heating systems. They're using coal-fired power plants to heat the city, um, and to and for industry. You know, it's not clean energy at all. Um, it's a cold area. There's you know, it's just south of Siberia, so it's 
you know, all winter is very, very cold. And this is, I think, in happening in November or something, you know, it's in the fall. Um, the the novel is set in the fall. So it's kind of the, the beginning of that that period. Um, but anyway, the the fog itself is speaking to the sort of indeterminacy or like the the not knowing where your future is, if you have a future, if you know, I'm kind of speaking the you as the, a Uyghur person has a future or not, um, if they have a place in the city, sort of the ground truth of what reality is, like your own history is not even available to you any longer because like the education institutions have all been taken over by the state and they're narrating a history that isn't your own. And news is not available, you know, like kind of fact-based news because it's all produced by the state apparatus. There's rumor that circulates, and that's you know that's feels as truthful as what you hear from the government, uh, maybe more truthful at times. And then there's alienation as well, where this person is all alone, doesn't have a friend, doesn't know anyone in the city, which th they say over and over again as a kind of mantra that that means that they're sort of safe because they don't know anyone, so they they can't have friends or enemies here. But it also means that. You know, there's no one to rely on. There's nothing to rely on. And so the ground is, just seems to be opening up and the, the sort of vague sort of impending doom is all that is surrounding this person and sort of seeping into them as well. Like there's a lot of discussion about how the fog is entering his body and penetrating his body in certain ways and sort of suffusing him, infecting him is sort of a disease vector as well. And, you know, there's discussion of that in the context of his work environment, too, where he's able to smell things, disease and so on that people have been infected by um, that they can't detect. And that appears to be related to the fog and just the general atmosphere that is sort of suffusing this entire space. But the fog is definitely a central character. And I think it's it's more than just sort of background. It's It's acting quite actively in the novel. I noticed that the language he uses as he's describing things he sees through the fog is often related to disease. He'll say that the lights of the building that I spotted across the street through the fog looked like open sores or they look like bandages. There's always something menacing about the, the analogy that he uses. But in terms of walking through the fog and feeling lost, I underlined one passage. This is from near the end of the book, right after he says his mantra, I don't know anyone in this strange city, so it's impossible for me to be friends or enemies with anyone. And then he says the following, I suddenly realized that no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't figure out where my place was, where I was, or what street I was on. Not only this, but I didn't really know which city I was in. The clarity of my thoughts faded, and I lost my perception of space. What country was I in? I gradually came to realize that I didn't even know what planet I was on. I was lost in the infinite universe. Just then I realized that everyone becomes a homeless wanderer after they are born and has difficulty finding a proper place for themselves as soon as they touch the ground and let out their initial cry. They will spend their whole life trying to determine their position, becoming anxious and griping about its vagueness. Everyone is a wanderer in space. So here he's giving what sounds to me like a universal declaration of alienation, that we're all in this existential crisis together. So it's, it's interesting. He's, he's speaking to the universal human condition, even as he is describing his experience on a, on a local level in Urumqi as, a, as an oppressed Uyghur. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and that's what Perhat would would want you to take away from it is that he's talking about uh, what it means to be human itself. And I think we should understand as well that colonialism is, is a fact of the human experience. It has been for the past few centuries and that all of us have a place within that, that framework of taking land from other people, taking their bodies from them. You know, history is made out of that. And we are the inheritors of that history. Not to say that we're individually responsible for all the horrific things that happen in the world, but they shape who we are and how we find a place within the world or a lack of a place within the world. One of the things that Perhat would tell me over and over again was that, you know, for him, what people take to be normal is what he takes to be crazy or 
as abnormal. And so he he wants to sort of turn things on their head and really make invert them and make people think a lot more critically about things that they accept as general truths. That's really the goal of, of his work in general. And we're back. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'm your host. We are halfway through my interview with Darren Byler, co-translator of a novel from Xinjiang, China. It's called The Back Streets and was written by Perhat Tursun, a famous Uyghur poet and novelist who sadly is now in the camps himself. Uh, If you'd like to join in the live listener chat, go to WFMU.org, click Playlist and Comments, or in the future, find the archive playlist link at tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H tonic.fm. Let's go ahead and listen to the second half of my interview with Darren Byler here on Tectonic on WFMU. Speaking of colonialism as somewhat of a universal human experience, at least in the in the last few centuries, as you say, in something you wrote, Darren, about the back streets, you mentioned Perhot's interest in translating this book into English. You said that English for him was the language of Toni Morrison and Malcolm X, and he was thinking about anti-racist writings in English that he was inspired by. So I think what I was thinking about there in, in my writing was actually what my co-translator was was saying about why he wanted to translate this into English or what English meant to him was was it was sort of the language of anti-racism and decolonization. And it was that also for Perhat Tursun, he learned Chinese back when he was a teenager in order to be able to read world literature and to read existentialist philosophy. Like He wanted to be able to read Freud and Schopenhauer and Nietzsche and all of those people and the only way he could do that, because they weren't available in Uyghur, was to learn Chinese. And then, of course, he also studied English, um, and, and so he could read almost anything um, in, in those languages by the time he was sort of a, a young adult. And so, I mean, that's a testament to his work ethic and his brilliance as a scholar. This is a person that's really hungry for knowledge and, and really wants to find their place within global literature, or within the world. But sure, of course, he was attracted to colonial, anti-colonial writing. And as he moved through his career, those kinds of writing came more available in Uyghur. Um, And that was really through some of Perhat Tursun's influence on other young Uyghurs. Um, He really introduced world literature to Uyghur culture, Uyghur society. And by writing in the way that he does, which is in sort of conversation with Camus and with James Joyce and all that post-colonial literature, um, he's teaching them that you know Uyghurs have a place and a way of of thinking about their world, conceptualizing their world that that is in parallel with all of these other people who have come to terms with their own oppression. And so, you know, the translation of uh, Malcolm X into Uyghur language, you know, there they're talking about the the film, the Spike Lee film, um, and having it dubbed into Uyghur, like that happened, you know, as a result of, of that sort of thinking about the parallels. And also because uh, the U.S. is positioned in official Chinese state discourse as an imperial power, and so Malcolm X is seen as an anti-imperialist and therefore can be welcomed into the Chinese canon. It was sort of a permitted text that for Uyghurs had a particular valence because this is a an ethno-racialized, racialized minority person who's a Muslim who is standing up to oppression. And you know that resonates very strongly with the Uyghur position. There's another theme in this book that comes through very strongly, and that's numbers. In the book, The Back Streets, the protagonist finds a slip of paper outside his office door that's filled with digits, seemingly random digits. And the character spends much of the novel trying to imagine what the digits might mean. And and in the course of the book, he reveals that he's always been interested in numbers and finding connections between numbers and significance of birth dates and and that sort of thing within the numbers. What do you think Torsun was trying to communicate with this use of numbers? 
Well, that again is up to some interpretation. I, I think that there's at least two factors or two sort of traditions coming together. One of them is a, a Sufi tradition of uh, Islamic thinking where numerology is, is a tradition that goes back for centuries. You know, it is a feature of Uyghur culture as well, um, where there's like a certain auspicious numbers and things that you do in certain sequences that will result in good luck or, or blessings, um, that sort of thing. And so I think he's thinking in those terms to a certain extent. Um, but then there's also mathematics, which is also comes out of Islamic traditions as well. I mean, algebra comes from from comes from South Asia and Middle East, right? Originally, but he's in the Uyghur context is thinking about it in relation to education itself and the promise of education that if you work hard, if you study, that you'll be able to find success within the meritocratic world of science and industry. And so for a lot of young Uyghurs, studying and learning a profession was something that they saw as as having promise, as as giving them hope and a future. But at the same time, my co-translator who who studied chemistry, he found that it didn't really pan out that way for him. Like he he did really well in chemistry. He loved it. It was like a language that he embraced and um, found so much meaning in. Um, and also equality and because you know once you know the language and can speak it like everyone's equal and you know it's 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 more about how you manipulate the chemical elements and so on but after he graduated he found he had, he got a job at a factory but he was always pushed to the bottom within the sort of factory hierarchy and wasn't really doing work related to what he had studied or his knowledge and then he was pushed into a, a job at a school teaching chemistry and and there faced sort of systematic discrimination from his coworkers and even from his own students and so eventually he just quit uh, because he he found like this wasn't a life path that had any meaning for him you know, the promise of chemistry, the promise of science was overwhelmed by the colonial system. So maybe that's part of what Perhat is trying to get at, is that dynamic, because it's a, it's a common feature of in Uyghur society and, and one that many readers of the book, Uyghur readers, recognize as as you know, having having purchased, having resonated with their own experience. I just found it ironic that the numbers were such a theme in the book, and here they, as you say, they represent the possible freedom that comes with education, the, the, the possible equality of people across races to work together on something and to be treated with respect. And yet, here's the irony that kept striking me as I read the book and, and seeing the mentions of, of numbers throughout is that there was another mention of numbers in the book in your introduction in which you talked about the, quote, numbered detainees throughout the camp system. In other words, the numbers that looked like such a, a path to professional success for the protagonist are the same numbers that undergird the surveillance and control system that have objectified and dehumanized people as they're shunted into these various camps. I know you said that Perhat wrote the book in the 90s before the system was, was really fully built out. Do you think that was part of his thinking? Was, was there an ironic element to um, playing with numbers throughout the book? Sure. I'm sure he's, there's, there's a certain amount of irony that's built into this and how he thinks about them. One of the things that he was quite conscious of was a sort of tokenism that was embedded in the system back in the 90s, where a government office was required by law to reserve a certain number of jobs for Uyghurs. But, you know, that didn't mean that those Uyghurs would be treated equally within the in the job or within the, the company that they were hired into or, or government office. Um, instead, they would be demeaned um, as the sort of required number that, of people that they were that the company was required to have. So, you know, he I think understood that Uyghurs were already viewed as simply an other and as as an object. Um, and so, in in that sense, you know, the most basic way of reading an object is as a number, and that thinking reaches its sort of final logic when you think about mass internment and people that are, you know, called out within the camp system by their number, you know, number so-and-so stand up or whatever, like their names no longer really have significance. 
their history is gone. Instead, it's they're just a number that already stands before them, is has already been assigned to them, and is part of a quota system again. But now it's the, the quota is different. The quota is that you need to detain a certain proportion of the Uyghur population within your jurisdiction. Um, and so you need to need to find criminals, you need to find terrorists, whether they exist or not, and, and lock them up. And now, as we said uh, at the top of the interview, Perhat is now part of that system. He was given a 16-year prison sentence, right, just uh, a couple of years ago. Has anyone heard from him? Or let, let me back up. Why did he get charged? Did this book have something to do with it, or was he just rounded up as part of a, a larger group? And was there any justification at all uh, offered by the government for this? Mm -hmm. We don't know. The trial, the sentencing was all done in secret. It's not clear what he was charged with. He's not a radical in terms of someone who is calling for Uyghur independence as a sort of separatist. And he was not, I mean, he was religious, but he wasn't involved in you know anything related to terrorism. And we, and we should say that he got in trouble with the Islamic authorities in the area as well, because some of his writings were critical of them. He didn't seem to be a partisan for anyone. He was a free thinker or is a free thinker. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, he was interested in sort of following the logics of systems like religions or states as well um, and seeing where they lead. And that kind of free thinking will make you unpopular with people that are in power in those institutions. And so he, he managed to upset everyone around him. It's not clear why he was detained, why he was sentenced. Other than that, he was really influential within Uyghur society, and he was not the only cultural leader that was taken. Over 300, maybe 400, and it could be quite a few more than that, were detained and almost all were sentenced over the same period of time. And this includes like the president of the university, the former governor of the region, all labeled as two-faced usually, which means that they they publicly supported the state, but secretly they they you know supported Uyghurs uh, in ways that undermined the state policy. It could be this book as well that had some effect in terms of Perhat being sentenced. He had published it in Uyghur um, already in 2014, which is how I found it. And I actually waited to publish it in English because I was concerned that its English publication would bring more notoriety to him and could cause him some harm and also my, my co-translator some harm. Um, and so I, I actually waited until he was sentenced and realized that, you know, at this point, publishing this book won't cause further damage, won't cause further harm for him necessarily because he's at this point, you know, not much more can be done to him. And he wanted me to publish it. He had been urging me to publish it. Um, and I'd been, I'd been saying, yes, I would, but I, I was also dragging my feet a bit. And so I feel like this is what he wanted. And, and, and so that's why I did it. But yeah, we don't know where he is. We don't know what conditions he's in. We can't really communicate with his family because they'll get in trouble if they speak with us as well. And, and so we just know he's been taken. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's very sad. And I guess one way people can show support for Perhat is to get a copy of the book and, and read it and understand his perspective and, and that of so many other Uyghurs who've been uh, living through this system there in China. What can you tell us about your anonymous co-translator of the Backstreets? Sure. So um, my co-translator, who I just put as anonymous in this book, was an underemployed young man who needed work. And it was someone I found, I met through mutual friends the same friends that had introduced me to this book um, and told me that this is a book that that really speaks to the sort of condition of migrants, of Uyghurs, young Uyghurs coming to the city, um, the sort of feelings that they have and so on. And so I started reading it and was realizing that this is world-class literature and really deserves a broader audience. And so then was thinking about translating it. And since I, I, I'm not a native Uyghur speaker, um, I thought it would be useful to have a second voice um, who would help me to really understand sort of the emotive uh, valences. And also like, you know, could kind of guide me through the text in some ways. Like, why is he saying this in this way here? So it's also helping me to kind of interpret the book. 
and because I'm an ethnographer, I'm an anthropologist rather than a literary translator, I was interested in like what this book does. Like, what does it tell us about the world? Uh, what does it tell us about Uyghur lives? And so me and this co-translator, we sat, you know, in the same spot many days in a, in the tea shop working through this text. And this was in Xinjiang. It was in Xinjiang in 2014, 2015. And reading these these scenes reading Perhat's work really opened up something for my co-translator. It helped him to tell his own story as well, because he had lived it, basically. He, in the end, he told me, it feels like this book was written for me uh, because it's about my life. And so it, it really helped him to kind of unpack the structural issues that he had faced, the discrimination he had faced in his own life, and helped me to understand also things that he had that the protagonist of the novel didn't have, which is my co-translator had a best friend who had come with him from the same village to the city um, and had helped him to sort of stay alive. Like my co-translator had was a depressed person, had contemplated suicide on multiple occasions, but his friend had said, no, you, you know, that isn't a choice you can make. You need to come out. You need to eat with me. Um, you know, you, you matter to me. And so you, your life matters itself. Um, and so he said that what this protagonist in the novel is missing is a friend. And having a friend that you can suffer with together means that you're able to continue to live. Um, and that that was just really powerful to me as a as a researcher and as a person to to think about how human relations help to sustain life in the midst of really you know oppressive um, systems of control. And so you know that was something that was really meaningful to me and and meant that I wanted to to really honor this book and honor my friends' lives and the work that they put into bringing it into the world, both Perhat and my co-translator. But I was also worried, of course, that it could implicate both of them by, by bringing it to a broader audience. And so when I learned that my co-translator had been taken to a camp, which was in mid-2017, that, along with Perhat later being taken, is what inspired me to, to move forward with the book and, and to do it in a way that I hope helps to help the world to see um, the sort of gift that they've given us through their through their life experience and their willingness to, their courage to express it to help us to see it we should also give credit to columbia university press for publishing the book i will put links to the book and to your work and our previous interview darren on the uh, on the playlist Maybe I'll finish with a quote from a review of The Backstreets that was run in The Atlantic. This review was actually written by a former Tectonic guest and a friend of mine named Ed Park, who's a writer himself. Ed wrote in The Atlantic Review of The Backstreets, Those who observe Bloom's Day every June 16 to celebrate Joyce's Ulysses should honor March 7, the day Torsun finished his own great work and possibly sealed his fate. And this refers to the very, very beginning of the book where Tursun writes the exact minute, down to the minute, on the day when he finished writing and then revising the back streets, again showing his enduring interest in numbers. <laughs> That's right. I mean, it's also that it is a tradition for Uyghur authors to list the time and place when they finish their work. I don't know that that date itself has any special significance to Perhat, um, but I, I think it should. And I, I really like that Ed was thinking in parallel with James Joyce's work in his review. And I would love to see that, that we have a new holiday for a literary work. The book again is called The Back Streets, a novel from Xinjiang by Perhat Tursun, translated by my guest today, Darren Byler, along with an anonymous translator, Darren, thanks again for being on Tectonic today, and I hope you'll be back again sometime. Well, thanks again for having me. It was an honor to speak with you. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the remaining 13 minutes and a half of the show, at which point the great Dave Mandel will take over, and you've got two hours of Dave Mandel this evening. 
because he's also going to go into Dan Boda's hour. So two hours of It's Complicated. It's doubly complicated this evening. The Prog Rock Show with Dave Mandel coming up in 13 minutes now. We just heard my interview with Darren Byler, co-translator of the novel The Backstreets by Uyghur novelist and poet Perhat Tursun, published by Columbia University Press. It's out now. And as you heard, Tursun's writing has been compared to that of Camus and James Joyce and Franz Kafka and probably some others as well. This book is well worth reading if you are interested at all in the plight of the Uyghurs in the western region of China called Xinjiang, as Darren talked about this evening and also in our previous conversation on Tectonic in January 2022, there is a system of camps in the Xinjiang region that has imprisoned, uh, we don't know how many, but maybe a million, uh, possibly two million uh, Uyghurs, separating parents from children, separating spouses from each other, and uh, just rounding people up indiscriminately and throwing them into the camps, erasing the Uyghur culture, the Uyghur language, uh, and criminalizing basic religious observance. These are Muslim people, and as Darren said, um, fasting for Ramadan uh, is it, it can be the reason that someone gets thrown into a camp for who knows how long could be years uh, this is this is an important topic for us to talk about on tectonic and and some people if you're just tuning in you may say did I did I tune into the China show what what does this have to do with technology and I'll, I'll tell you that I have been covering what's happening in China uh, and or in Xinjiang uh, for over three years now, I was looking in, in the archives, just just a, a cursory glance at how many shows I have devoted to this topic. Um, and I've put these links on the playlist at WFMU.org. If you're interested to, to click through and, and listen, in, in addition to this hour, you have five more hours. So six hours total have been devoted to this topic, starting in April of 2019 with Paul Mosier, uh, who had been reporting for the New York Times on the, the growing surveillance state uh, in Xinjiang, but also spreading throughout the country. Then in June of 21, we talked with author Amelia Pang about her book Made in China, in which she uh, talked about her research into forced labor. Um, it was th That book Made in China was not only focused on Uyghurs, although the Uyghurs do feature uh, in the book. Um, but she talks about how a number of Americans have bought, um, I think the, the, the story that she started the book with was these cheap Halloween decorations. Somebody bought it, either Walmart or Target. And like a lot of these decorations, they're made in China, and the person brings home these Halloween decorations and unpacks the box, and there's a note inside and the note, and I can't remember the exact wording, but the note indicates that um, the, the writer of the note was uh, being enslaved in a forced labor camp in China. And would, and would uh, whoever found the note, please pass the word because they need help and they need rescue. And so Amelia Pong talks about, and that's not the only time that's happened. She talks about the incidents of, of um, enslaved laborers trying to ask for help by putting notes in these, in these various uh, boxes for, for consumer objects that then get sold in American big box stores. Um, of course, this, this system of camps is not simply forced labor, although that's a big part of it. There's also um, what they call re-education. Uh, but read, read Made in China if you're interested. Um, and then January of this year, as we talked about Darren's own book, In the Camps, which goes into some detail about where the camps came from, how many there are, and what kinds of different camps there are. And then in March, I had Ethan Gutman on talking about digital spycraft and human rights work in China, the uh, lengths that he has had to go to in order to evade uh, detection by Chinese authorities as he has gone in. 
to um, gain information. And I think in at least, I'm just going from memory from our conversation, in at least one case, actually rescuing someone um, out of the surveillance state. That was a really interesting conversation. And then uh, most recently on November 28, I talked about, uh, as as the show title said, why you shouldn't trust Apple. And when we, when we talk about <laughs> the Chinese surveillance state, as I said earlier, said at the top of the show, this is not meant to be a China bad rant, okay? Um, b- because there are American companies that are complicit in what the Chinese Communist Party is doing. Um, Tim Cook knows exactly what he's doing, and there is research that, that suggests that there are suppliers I don't think this includes Foxconn, the main, the main manufacturing company, but there are suppliers within the Apple supply chain that have been found to be using forced labor. Um, and that's, that's just Apple, which I think probably pays an above average amount of attention to the source of its labor. There are many other companies in the U.S. that are far more lax in their uh, complicity with the Chinese economy. So this... This is not simply to say, you know, China China's bad. I'm trying to point out where there are ties between companies and, for that matter, of powerful in, in investors and venture capitalists here in the U.S. have large, some of them have large holdings in in China, and uh, I, I remember I I ran um, I ran a show a year or two ago that included um, a, a, an excerpt of a conversation with Mark Cuban when he was asked why he doesn't divest his holdings from Xinjiang. And he said, oh, well, you know, we can't do everything, can we? Uh, It was a total non-answer. Another person, by the way, who has vast holdings in China is Elon Musk. Now, I know Elon Musk has been in the news probably the way he loves it. Everyone's talking about him, and he's causing outrage after outrage. Um, It reminds me of a certain former occupant of the White House more and more each day. But um, what, what does not get reported very much is how deeply complicit Elon Musk is with the uh, funding he gets or really the support he gets from the Chinese economy. And that only comes if it's blessed by his Chinese Communist Party handlers who are watching the deal between Tesla and the Chinese economy. Not long ago, Elon Musk uh, was, was proud to announced the opening of a new Tesla showroom in downtown Urumqi, which is the capital of the Xinjiang region. So he's right in the heart of the area where the forced labor is going down, but he needs the Chinese economy to sell these cars. He needs to keep selling these cars. And so he is dependent on the success of his products being sold into the Chinese economy. So see if you can find ever, ever, I'd really love to see, can anyone find one instance ever when Elon Musk has said anything critical about the Chinese Communist Party or its practice of forced labor or the plight of the Uyghurs or anything uh, of, of the, 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 the panoply of unethical and or outrageous things that that government body is doing to its own citizens. Has Elon Musk ever spoken out about it? I don't think anyone can, can find one instance. Um, so, uh, you know, I, this is not to go, this is... <laughs> This is not to dump on China. It's to try to point out the shape of this beast that we are facing. This is an integrated system of capital and technology and, uh, and, and these vectors of oppression that are, uh, that are steamrolling an entire culture of millions of people within the boundaries of, of China. And as I said on a previous show, you know, in 1945... Uh, we all looked around at the smoking ruins in, uh, in the camps in, in uh, Poland and, and Austria and, and, and elsewhere, and we said, um, never again. We are never going to allow a system of camps to be set up by a government on the basis of, of race or ethnicity or religion to, um, to, to mistreat people at scale like this. This is never going to have to force labor, uh, imprisonment, Death, this is never going to happen. In no country are we ever going to allow this to happen ever again. And it's happening. And um, I just, I want to keep bringing this up because the tech industry 
is deeply complicit with this. And I try to cover what's happening in the tech industry everywhere in the world on this show. And I thank you for paying attention. Um, uh, on a lighter note, uh, I have put on the playlist a link to the WFMU 2022 Specials Roundup. These are DJs and hosts who have picked one show from, from this past year that they want to present to you. That's linked on the playlist. I think it's a really great page if you want to get a sense of the breadth of the creativity and all the goodness that comes out of this radio station. Uh, next week, uh, as I said before, Arb is going to be the guest host. I'm so happy about that. And the following week, the first show of the year, uh, Ken Friedman is going to join me here as a co-host, as we have done for the past five years. And we're going to go over the year ahead in technology. And uh, I hope you have a great holiday. I want you to stay tuned for Dave Mandel and two hours of It's Complicated. You've been listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at wfmu.org. Until next year, friends, you know what to do. Abandon Amazon, avoid Apple, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, get off Google. Have a great rest of your year, everybody. Take care. Hey there. <laughs> Good evening. Dave Mandel here is my name. The show is called It's Complicated. I'm here every Monday between the hours of 7 and 8 p.m. Get the volume up there. And uh, welcome. Good evening. Nice to be here, as always. Tonight, Dan Boda and Vocal Fry have the evening off. So I'm going to encroach on his, uh, on his turf and I'm going to take 
uh, take his hour. So this show tonight will be two hours long. I'll be I'll be here from seven till nine instead of seven to eight. And everyone, everyone, like literally everyone I have mentioned that to, has made <laughs> has made the same joke. Everyone's made the same joke. Dave, you're doing an extra hour tonight. What two songs are you going to play, Dave? <laughs> I may actually do that. I may actually play two extra long songs in that extra in that second hour, but we'll see. But in the meantime, we're going to begin this evening's program with music from the French group Etron Fou. Etron Fou Le Lou Blanc is the full band name, and they 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 changed it somewhere in the after uh, after they've been together a few years. May, I may or may not bore you with that story in a in a few minutes when we come back. But I'm going to play a track from an early album of theirs. And uh, this is a longish one, 10, 11 minutes. And I, if all goes well, if all goes well, I'll be following this track off with a piece by a band that included, a band from the uh, 90s, I think, that included the drummer from this group, Gigou Chenevier. So we're going to hear, to start today's show, a track from Etron Fou, and then after that we'll hear a track from a group called Les, Les Batteries, which included Etron, Fou, uh, Etron Fou's drummer, Gigou Chenevier. Got that? Here we go. Des bureaux de montants et des Bon matin, flaira le vent. La pluie partout s'annonçait à l'ouest, à l'est, derrière, devant, ailleurs et de tous côtés, semblable à des champs de blé.
moi que vais-je faire Quitte, quittons, que je Thank you. 